Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. Today, I am particularly delighted to welcome a dear friend of long standing to Ground Control Parenting. Randall Kennedy is the Michael R. Klein Professor at Harvard Law School, where he teaches courses on contracts, criminal law, and the regulation of race relations. He's the author of many books, including For Discrimination, Race, Affirmative Action, and the Law, The Persistence of the Color Line, Racial Politics in the Obama Presidency, and his most recent publication, Say It Loud, on Race, Law, History, and Culture. He is a graduate of Princeton University, Oxford University, and Yale Law School. He has three young adult children, Henry William, who's 27, Rachel and Thaddeus, both of whom are 23. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Randy. Thanks so much for having me on. (laughs) Well, since I met you when I was a law student and you were about to graduate from law school, and therefore I've known you before you acquired the prestigious title of Professor Randall Kennedy, I hope you don't mind that I'm going to call you Randy throughout our conversation. (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) It'd be kind of tough for me to go formal with you. So, Randy, I am so happy to talk with you today. You are well known for speaking your impressive mind about the law and race relations, but today I'd like to focus that mind on a topic you are less often asked to opine upon, which is parenting. I'd love to hear some of your parenting experiences, including how you were parented and how that impacted your parenting, and more broadly, how you raised your three children under very challenging circumstances. So, let's get started. First, let's start with how you were raised. Now, I know you were born in Columbia, South Carolina, and you grew up in Washington, D.C. Did you spend a lot of time in South Carolina? I was very young when we moved. I was four years old, probably, when we moved. My parents were refugees from the Jim Crow South. Mm. I once asked my father, why did you move? And he said, I moved because I thought that if I did not move, one of two things was going to happen. I was going to kill a white man or a white man was going to kill me. So Hmm. I thought it best to move the family. Sounds like good grounds for moving. (laughs) And you have said that race was a constant topic of conversation growing up. And it sounds like with that being the impetus to move, that that stands to reason. So how did these conversations take place? Was it around the dinner table or was it just sort of everywhere? And were they principally with your parents? It was everywhere. It was certainly around the dinner conversation. My parents were both massively affected by Mm -hmm. racial discrimination, Uh, particularly my father. My father saw the ugliest side of American racism, and it scarred him throughout his life. He had a very tough upbringing. He saw many terrible things. And it made him have a very dark view of the United States of America. My father was a thoroughgoing pessimist. He did not think that we shall overcome. Uh, And he had a very harsh view of white America. My mother was somewhat different. She was a a bit more conventional than my dad. She was a bit more optimistic. But she, too, uh, had been deeply affected by racism. My mother went to South Carolina State College. And uh, when she, for instance, when she wanted to go to uh, get some graduate uh, education, she could not, there, there was no place in South Carolina that she could go to. Hmm. So the, the state gave her a little bit of money 
so that she could attend uh, NYU to get her master's uh, degree. So yeah, I heard a lot about race growing up. That was a, that yes, that was a constant topic of conversation in my household. And you have two siblings, your brother Henry and your sister Angela. And were the three of you, were you all sort of participants in these conversations? Do they get the same kind of sense as you did about your parents' perspectives? Yes. They, um, now my sister's a little bit, my sister's seven years younger than me. My brother's seven years older than me. So there was quite a span. Mm. But all of the kids heard what my parents had to say, and all of the kids heard stories. All of the kids heard about various heroes and heroines and villains. And so, yeah, I think that my story with my parents, I think, is, is, is certainly with respect to things racial, was very similar to um, my siblings. It's interesting because you describe your father as someone who had very strong opinions, born of traumatic experiences, but had very clear views on race relations. And what I know from your writings is that perhaps sort of you're not in lockstep with all of his perspectives, but it sounds like you were raised in a household where you were encouraged to have strong opinions about things, or at least to voice them. Were, were the children encouraged as much as your father liked to talk about how he felt? Were you all encouraged to sort of debate or discuss? Oh, yes. At the table, the, 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 yes, there was debate and very vigorous debate, very vigorous disagreement. My father and my mother, they did. They had very strong feelings, but they also gave room for disagreement. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we, you know, and, and we, and we would talk about the disagreement. So in particular, the, the, the strongest points of disagreement were between my father and actually my older brother. And we used to laugh about it because, I mean, they would really, they strongly disagreed. Uh, again, my father was a very strong black nationalist. A race man, as it were. Total race man. Total race man. If there was an athletic competition and you went up and asked my father, well, you know, who are you pulling for? It went like this. He was pulling for the team that had a black coach. Now, if there was no black coach, he then started counting the black players. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and whichever team had the most black players, that's who he was for. And, then, and that's the way he, you know, that's the way he was. Mm-hmm. And uh, very strong race man. And, we, you know, and my brother was a strong, is, you know, strong race man too, but he was a much more, you know, integrationist, much more, again, we shall overcome much more a belief that uh, the United States, though flawed, deeply flawed, is still a, a, a force for good in the world. My father did not believe that. My father did not believe that the United States was a force for good in the world. And they would, you know, they would have real strong, you know, hour long, hours long <laughs> debates about this. And yes, we were encouraged to say what we thought to, you know, okay, this is what you think. You know, why do you think this? Can you give me some evidence? It sounds like there was a valuable lesson in addition to the ability to speak your mind and be challenged and defend your positions. And that is that when the discussion was over, 
you moved on. I mean, the, so you did not, a, a, a cantankerous, a, a vociferous debate, a, a really almost angry debate would end and then it would be your father and, and your sibling. I mean, everybody would be fine. Is that the way it went? True. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I, I think that people would, people might see us and think, oh my gosh, look at, you know, <laughs> look, look at these people. And but that, that's, the, and we, that's the way we carried on. And it was loud, <laughs> very loud. People butted in. <laughs> uh, it was, it was, it was deeply impassioned, but that's right. When it was over, it was over. And I think that there was a sense that when we'd have these discussions, you'd have a discussion and that's what you thought at that moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but maybe you, you know, two weeks later, maybe, you know, thinking back, you've reconsidered, you've learned something new, you know, ideas evolved over time. That That is an important point. <laughs> they definitely do. And often people don't allow for that. So that that is great. Now, it doesn't surprise me, though that these conversations of these debates, being able to voice your opinion and challenge them, it doesn't surprise me that all three of you decide to pursue law. <laughs> Although it, this was not, neither parent was focused on law. Is that right? The three of you just decided to go to law school? Yeah, my bro- that's right. My, my brother was the leader of the bunch. He was first. And frankly, I went to law school mainly because my brother went to law school. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it's, it's been follow the leader. He he would do, th- you know, he he swam, I swam. He played tennis, I played tennis. He went to law school. You know, I went to law school. Uh, and then I think, you know, I think that my brother and me probably had some sway on what my younger sister decided to do. But yeah, that's right. We all went into law. My father would have run rings around all of us in terms of being a practitioner of the law. And my father was deeply interested in law. And indeed, one of the stories that is most vivid in my mind, and it really came back to affect me in my my life as a, as a young lawyer, had to do with a story that my father loved to tell. 1948, Columbia, South Carolina, going to watch the oral argument in a case called Rice versus Elmore, the South Carolina white primary, and who was there arguing the NAACP position? None other than Thurgood Marshall. And my father constantly talked about just being there and what it meant to see Thurgood Marshall argue the case, to see that Thurgood Marshall was the most impressive person in that courtroom. And, you know, my father was not a lawyer. He didn't know what the, you know, the legal issue, the legal issue was, you know, state action doctrine. That's not what my father, you know, knew about or focused on. The thing that he talked about was that the judge called Thurgood Marshall, Mr. Marshall. And so did everybody else. He was just the, the he was the outstanding person in that courtroom. And so I grew up with Thurgood Marshall in the backdrop of my household. And, and you know, I, I had the great privilege of working for Thurgood Marshall as a law clerk in 1983-84. And so, you know, it was sort of a, 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 a circle. And on the next to last day that I worked for Thurgood Marshall, my father came down to the Supreme Court and I had the pleasure of introducing my father to Thurgood Marshall. And it was quite a moving it was a very moving moment when my dad said to Thurgood, just told Thurgood Marshall what it meant 
to see him mm. and how he, t- he said to my face, he said, you know, listen, I'm, you know, I'm from the deep South. I was in various places in deep South. Terrible things would happen. And people would say, hold on, Thurgood's coming. And, you know, it was it was one of the most it was just uh, like I said, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that moment. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> so I, I have to interject here. Two things. One. We talked about your siblings and how all of you decided to go to law school, but I just have to interject. You all just didn't go to law school. All of you went to Princeton University. Your older brother and your younger sister went to Harvard Law School. You went to Yale Law School. No, no. My, my older brother went to Harvard. My sister went to Howard. Howard, okay. And I went to Yale. Ah, okay. All right. That's, that, that's the three. So three of you went to three prestigious law schools and all of you went to Princeton undergrad. I mean, this is major. I mean, you guys just didn't go to school. You went to schools that are are well-known and that have amazing histories. So it sounds like you all must have done well in school when you were younger. Did your parents convey this expectation to you in any way? I mean, how did they steer you or did they steer you all to excel? First. I've been, I've had a very charmed life. I've, I've been very lucky with one great exception. I've been very lucky in my life. And the first stroke of great luck I had was with my parents. Mm. My parents, wonderful parents, wonderful parents. They were loving, careful, attentive. They did, they had, they, and, and, they they didn't talk about it, but looking back, I think that they did have their own sort of strategies. One strategy they had was up until the age of about 12, they really rode us hard. I mean, you know, you, you, they, they, they were, they were, they were sort of eagle-eyed, very careful and would correct, you know, you didn't do this. They would be right on it. Boom. Mm-hmm. until about the age of 12. And my sense is that at the age of 12, they took a step back and figured that, okay, we have basically by this time set down our expectations. You, you know, if I tell you to do something, you do it. No, you know, no, no if, ands, and but we can, we can have debates about philosophy. We can have debates about, you know, world events. We can have debates about a variety of things. That's great. People can disagree. But if I tell you to be home by eight o'clock, you be home by eight (laughs) o'clock. If I tell you not to go out, you do not go out. And and it, it was, it was very military and they weren't playing around. I mean, it was no, that it was just, you know, if, if they said, don't do something, that was that. And you didn't even think about doing it. I mean, they were very tough. But when, around the time you were 12 or 13, they really took a step back and they enlightened up. I think that their, their theory was, if we've done our job correctly, we've set down the right habits. And now these kids with the right habits will, you know, basically do what they're supposed to do. Oh, here's one thing, very distinctive thing. Here's my parents did have this as a a rule. You had to do something. <laughs> you had to have a passion. And basically they said, you know, you know, frankly, we don't care. 
you, you, you know, pick, pick out what you want to do. Mm-hmm. But their thing was, we're working people. My mother was a school teacher. My father worked in the post office. We're working people. We're not going to have, you know, we don't, we, we don't, we, we don't have babysitters and stuff. So what we want you to do is you pick out something that you were going to get knee deep into. And that's what you're going to do. And so for me, it was tennis. My parents, oh, it, it didn't matter if, if I wasn't home. They knew where I was. I was either at two sets of tennis courts. They could go to two recreation centers and be assured that they would find me. Um, my sister uh, was, um, and my brother the same, my sister was um, violin. She she got she she was quite a fine violinist. But their thing was you have to sort of do something to keep yourself satisfied, to organize yourself, to let us know basically where you are, who you're around, and that was and that you know and that was that. Well, tennis served you well as it contributed to your getting a scholarship to St. Albans, mm-hmm. this very well-known, very highly regarded private school in Washington. And that, I was about to say that it set you off on this amazing trajectory, but your family was already positioned <laughs> for that trajectory since you followed your brother to Princeton and then went off to law school, then to clerk with Jay Skelly Wright and then to Justice Marshall, as you said. And I just have to interject here that one of the highlights of my short legal career, which was even before it began, was getting to go with you to the Supreme Court building and walking into the hall, walking into the the chambers of the Justice Marshal, but also standing in the podium, of course, after hours when nobody was there, at the podium with the nine chairs in front. I mean, I, I it was for, for a young lawyer, it was so inspiring. And, and uh, I mean, when you describe your father meeting Thurgood Marshall, I, I mean, I could just, I get goosebumps because just being in that room, <laughs> being in the, in the, in the courtroom with no one else there was just so thrilling. So anyway, <laughs> just a quick digression, but couldn't leave Justice Marshall, but without adding that. So you went from Justice Marshall's chambers to Harvard Law School to teach. Mm-hmm. And I mean, straight away. And then you married Yvette Love Matori in 1985. So for our listeners, if you think that Randy's resume is impressive, (laughs) I just have to tell you about Yvette. She graduated magna cum laude from Yale. She went on to Yale Medical School to get her degree. She trained at a variety of impressive hospitals. She became a breast cancer surgeon and an assistant professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. And then in the late 90s, when she wanted to start a business to deliver remote health care to patients after they returned home from the hospital, and she decided in order to do that, she needed an MBA, she enrolled in Columbia Business School just as she discovered that she was pregnant with twins, and she pursued the degree and graduated. So, I mean, I, I remember at your wedding, there was some description of the two of you, and it's like, okay, wait, <laughs> you guys... <laughs> How did you find each other and and what will this union create? So that's, there's a the question. How did you find each other? I met Yvette in, uh, I think, probably the ninth grade. She went to Sidwell Friends School. I went to St. Albans School for Boys. We met at Sidwell Friends at a little party and we used to play cards with one another. We, we didn't really go out, but we, we we played cards with one another. We had mutual friends. And then, you know, we sort of fell out of touch. 
And then we, we got in touch again when she was a second year medical student. I was a first year law student. And we bumped into one another on the street in New Haven. And we started going out. We had a courtship that lasted, oh, about five years. We got married. She did a lot of training for her surgery stuff. And then uh, we uh, had kids, three children. So you guys had Henry, who was older, mm-hmm. and you said Henry was born in 94. 98. Right? No, no, 94. 94. Right. Yeah. And so in 1994, I'm trying to get at sort of where you were in your respective careers, like your time management with a young baby. Well, I mean, it was, we, we were older than I think a lot of, you know, folks. We, she wanted to wait till her surgery training mm-hmm. was done. Which was fine by me. I'm, I'm going to tell you something, Carol. You know, I, I, I think I've maybe I've mentioned this to you before. I was a very reluctant parent. <laughs> I mean, left to my own devices, I probably would not have had children. Yvette was a very powerful person, as you've already indicated. <laughs> and she wanted children. And so that was that. And we had children. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's, it's, and we had children and, um, so how did it work when you, with the baby of just from a, from a, both of you were working professionals, but was there a principal did, since she had a medical degree, did she take the lead on baby care or did you guys, you we, were- we, um, with baby, with childcare, we, we had a nanny. Mm-hmm. In fact, we had a nanny, we had a, a live in nanny. And then when the well, a couple of years later, when the twins came, we we had a live in nanny and another nanny. So mm-hmm. I mean, we, we had child care. Yeah. And, and once they came along, surely when you looked into those adorable little faces, <laughs> your reluctance melted away. <laughs> I was a very I was I was a very involved parent. You know, that had a very. My schedule was a much looser schedule than a vet's. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if she she had an operation, you know, if she was operating on somebody, she was operating on somebody. <laughs> Whereas for me, I mean, you know, I I could read I could read my books, I could prepare for my contracts class, frankly, anywhere, and I did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I was around the kids. I went, you know, bike riding. I was up with the kids a lot. Then everything changed. Yeah. Incredibly, Yvette gets cancer and she passes away in 2005. And suddenly you're a widower, a single dad, raising three young children. And the twins were what, six years old? Were they six? Yeah. And so here we are, 17 years later, and your children are all thriving, great young adults. So can you just talk a little bit about how you traveled that parenting path? I mean, it's a good arc. Your kids are great, but... Did you have to make major lifestyle changes? And was there a village that sort of surrounded you guys? Well, I was very, first of all, I had help in the sense of moral help. My parents, at least my, my, my mother was alive and I talk with her often. My vet's father was alive, Dr. Mertori, and we became closer and closer and closer. And I talk with him often. And so my, you know, my extended family in Washington, D.C., we would go down there and they, they, you know, we, I talked with them all the time. I take the kids there and they were very helpful. 
The kids' schools were very helpful. I remember when um, high school came around, I remember going to, uh, with my oldest boy, uh, Henry, Henry William, I remember going to, he, he went to a school, the, both boys went to a school called St. Sebastian School. And I didn't really know much about the school. I, I went to the school and was just talking and I was immediately impressed. And uh, I was talking with the admissions officer there and he was asking me, you know, what I was looking for in a school. And I said, listen, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a widower. So my kids are going to, obviously I want a very fine school, but my kids are going to need a little bit more. They're going to need a community because, you know, they just, they just need more. It's just me at the house. And these, the schools that they attended did provide that. St. Sebastian's provided that. Their elementary school, the Park School provided that. Rachel's High School, Noble and Greeno uh, provided that. Parents, you know, I, I, I traveled a good bit and there were a set of friends that my kids had whose, whose families were absolutely magnificent. If I had to, if I, if I had to go for a day or two, be, be away for, let's say, two days, three days, there were people I could call up, I could go, and I didn't have to look back. Mm-hmm. So I, I had support. I was, I was very lucky. I had support. It was that which you just put your finger on was the great tragedy in my life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, um, <clears throat> I remember basically saying, you know, out loud, nobody around, Hey, my, my feeling was that, uh, there was a plane. It was a two engine plane going over the ocean. Now it's a one engine plane going over the ocean let me just get to the end of the ocean. And the end of the ocean for me was basically the kids graduating from college. Mm -hmm. That was the end of the ocean. I figured by that time, if something bad happened to me, if something bad, you know, if if I dropped dead right now, my kids, frankly, it'd be sad, but they would be fine. They would be able to negotiate the world. And my great hope and prayer was that I would be able to reach this moment and land the plane. And now I feel tremendous relief, mm. tremendous relief. Plane landed. Absolutely. And, and landed very well, I might add. I mean, your children are, are, are doing great things. It's just a quick aside. I know my, your son and my son were in school together. And so, yes, you landed the plane very, very well. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to the show. So I imagine since they were pretty young, it's, it's always been really important for you to have them know as much as possible about their mother. Mm. How, how did you, how did you focus on making sure this happened over the years? Um, that was difficult because I mean, they, they have very clear memories of their mother. We have, um, you know, we have their mother's voice on tape, her on tape with the kids. In our, you know, various vacations, her skating with the kids, biking with the kids, snorkeling with the kids. And like I said, they have a vivid memory. We always had to be a bit careful. They, they tended to be more, frankly, poised than me. I um, am prone to um, really fall apart. I'll tell you a story. They, um, a couple of years ago, 
There's a very nice thing. One of Yvette's classmates, she was a woman in the year behind Yvette at Yale Medical School, Dr. Tina Poussant. Dr. Tina Poussant is a very distinguished physician in her own right at the Children's Hospital. When Yvette died, Tina led a campaign to create a lectureship at Yale Medical School in Yvette's name. And every year, there's a lecture at Surgical Grand Rounds, and I go to it every year, and they get a distinguished physician to you know, give a lecture. And in any event, one year I went, I took Rachel and Thaddeus with me, because the night before, there's a nice dinner. And uh, at this dinner, they had everybody, they, I didn't know what was going to happen, but the doctor, the head of surgery said, well... Why don't let, let's have it so that everybody introduces, you know, everybody introduce yourself and uh, tell what your connection is with this event. And Rachel stood up and, you know, I'm Rachel Kennedy. I'm, you know, Dr. Matori's, you know, daughter and blah, blah, blah. She was just as poised as could be. Thaddeus went and he was just as poised as he could be. I was the last speaker of, and, you know, I, I you know, everybody went around and I was the last. I could hardly, you know, I, I, I got, I got out, you know, three tight sentences. <laughs> they can speak about their mother with poise. They've obviously, they've thought about it a lot. I think it's had a big effect on their lives. The boys have become quite religious. And I know that part of their religiosity is, is wrapped up with making sense of this terrible tragedy that befell them at a young age. Mm -hmm. Their religiosity did not come from you. I think it's safe to say. No, I'm not. I I grew up in a religious household, by the way. Mm -hmm. My household was a. I mean, when I was growing up, I went to you know Sunday school without question. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a very religious household, at least religious in the sense of ritualistic. We went to church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for much of my life, and I, I loved going to church, and I've had wonderful ministers. I love church music. I, I, I you know, I, I, I have many friends who are church-going people. But no, I am a completely secular person. I don't, I don't, I have no religious feeling at all. But my my boys do, and Rachel, I think, is still trying to find her way. First of all, I want to say that the poise you described that your children have. I could see that so vividly the way you described it, but you know, you have to know that comes from you. <laughs> I mean, you, they would not have been able to be as poised and as proud without two things, without you kind of giving them the life and the confidence and the courage that put them in that position. But also, I think when a parent can demonstrate falling apart, I think the children sort of step up to be, <laughs> I think it helps them be more, I mean, they, they probably were as concerned about you. I mean, I think that they they probably were, I'm sure they were very proud, but I can imagine them wanting to be as poised as possible to do you proud. So that's a great story, a really great story. So I want to stay with your children, move on slightly to a different topic. So I'm going to say two paragraphs that may not sound connected initially, but stay with me here. So over your years of teaching and writing, you've developed a reputation for having a, and I'm quoting, a commitment to pursuing the truth about controversial issues, specifically the intersection of race and legal issues in institutions. That's, that's one quote that's been said about your work. It's been called provocative. And you yourself have said, 
I take strong positions, but I also try to be attentive to the complexity of things. And now that I've heard about your father, this just (laughs) sounds like the apple didn't fall far from the tree at that respect. So in the acknowledgments of your latest book, Mm -hmm. the collection of your essays called Say It Loud on Race, Law, History, and Culture, you mentioned both being buoyed by Yvette's spirit and also you extend your appreciation for your three children who, quote, patiently and lovingly allowed me to try out on them many of the ideas voiced in these pages. Okay, so these two paragraphs. So you were known for being a brilliant scholar and people have disagreed with your opinions Mm -hmm. and many have agreed, but they've also agreed and you're very comfortable in that. You're very comfortable, as you describe your childhood, it makes sense. You're very comfortable in circumstances where people disagree with you. So how did you try out the ideas on your children? I mean, I'm curious about how that worked. And then just generally speaking, how did you raise these independently minded children who aren't afraid to hold the concepts, even if they didn't agree with them up to this microscope? Because it sounds like that's what you do. And in order to try them out on them, that's what they have to do as well. How did you guys sort of create, did you have the dinner table conversations? We certainly did. And I, um, they accompanied me to school they've been in they've they've seen they've they've sat in classes that I've taught they've come to me they've come to hear me lecture they have if I'm writing something I'll try it out I'll say hey you know I'm right I'm this is this is something I'm working on here's my line what do you think and they will tell me what they think Sometimes they agree, sometimes they disagree. What often happens is one of them will agree and the other two will disagree and then we'll be (laughs) off the races. But I've handled them, you know, I've, I've handled them, I think, in much the same way as my parents handled me, which is from a pretty early age, I gave them a lot of respect. I took on board what they had to say, and I criticized if I thought that they had a position. You know, I disagree with that position for the following three reasons. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and we'd go back and forth. I would take them to movies. We would we would laugh because I think that I think that there were some parents who (laughs) thought that. You know, I was being way too permissive in <laughs> taking the kids to movies that the, the, the one that my, you know, the kids we, we, we laugh about is uh, I remember when the when the movie Inglorious Bastards came out. So Quentin Tarantino, I took the, I took my three, you know, we all went. <laughs> and I think that, you know, when they when when Thad and, and Rachel, I think, told just in talking, you know, told said, you know, what, you know, what, what they had recently seen. I think there were some parents who thought, well, you know, that's way too mature, <laughs> but you know, too bad. That's what I did. <laughs> I mean, they, you know, they saw some everything and we talk about things mm-hmm. and um, we, we really talked about things, political, things, personal conduct of all sorts. And I would level with them. There have been a there have been occasions on which there you know I have taken their advice. I really have. In particular, I must say the person whose advice Rachel in Say It Loud. There were a couple of times in which she intervened. I would you know I'd, I'd write I had an essay. Mm-hmm. I'd shoot it to her. 
here's a draft. What do you think? And she would come right back and say, well, I think, you know, I think this is good. I think this is good. But I think this is bad. (laughs) And there were a couple of occasions on which I think she saved me from myself. Wow. And and by the way, and her brothers in, you know, in different contexts, they've, Mm -hmm. they've stepped forward and shared with me their feelings about things. And, you know, they're, they're smart people. And, uh, I've, I've learned from them and I hope they've learned from me. Wow. You know, that's, that's, that's the way we've proceeded. So a couple of, of quick questions before we wrap that's related to this. So some of your books and opinions and, and lectures have been met with criticism that mm-hmm. has been public. Were your children impacted by any of it? I mean, if they were to read things that uh, some criticism of you, while I'm sure the criticism was rooted in whatever you were saying, I'm sure there were some sort of exaggerations or some writings that as your family, they would take offense to, (laughs) I mean, on your behalf. But how did they learn to not take it personally? Or did they learn to not take it personally? I I think... You know, yeah, they heard, you know, they read stuff. They, I'm sure, you know, they've heard all sorts of things. I think that they probably have been influenced by the way I handle this, these things, mm-hmm. which is the, my basic view is, listen, nobody compelled me to write things. You know, when you write something or when you give a lecture, you are stepping forward and you're putting yourself out there, and frankly, you're disturbing things. You know, nobody asked you to say anything. You could have just shut up, but no, you wanted to say something. Okay, fine. You said it. Now, people are going to respond, and some people are not going to like what you had to say. Well, comes with the territory. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, so-and-so said something. Okay, well, I mean, first of all, let's get straight exactly what they said. Okay, this is what they said. Second, do they have a point? They might have a point. They might be right. (laughs) I might have said, you know, this and said we should go in this direction. And somebody might have said, no, Kennedy's all wet. We should go in that direction. (laughs) Well, maybe they're right. (laughs) And so I think that the kids, you know, sort of picked up on that. And I think are pretty, my children, I think are pretty comfortable with that. I have spoken, by the way, I've spoken at their schools. I spoke at Henry's High School. I spoke at Henry's College. He went to Union College. With Thaddeus and Rachel, I spoke at their elementary school, and I spoke at their high school. And like I said, they've seen me in other settings. And I kind of like it, you know, if, if, I've, if I've given a talk, I'll say to them, hey, you know, were you around people? Yeah, I was around people. You know, what were people saying? Because they didn't know who you were. You know, what were, what were they saying? And they all <laughs> relayed to me what they were saying. And fine. It's all part. It's, Paul, it's, you know, disputation, disagreement, even, you know, being put down. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, that's all part of it. <laughs> that, that's great. It's. I very much like that perspective, and I'm sure that parents who listen would love to be able to give their children that that confidence. I mean, it's sort of it's sort of almost matter of fact in the sense that you put yourself out there. You have to be prepared for people to disagree. And I really like your point about maybe they're right in that it, it immediately reminds me of 
when you were growing up and you said that you and your brothers were arguing with your father or your brother was arguing with your father and you'd have the opportunity, each of you would have the opportunity to come back for the next discussion and say, wait a minute, maybe I was wrong there or I've rethought this. I mean, letting our children understand that you can have a change of perspective without the world falling apart is a really valuable lesson, particularly these days when people seem so rooted in how they feel and there's no they don't listen to the criticism. And more importantly, they don't try to absorb it. That ability to absorb the criticism and maybe have it move you a little that I, I would, I think that's valuable. I also think that you can credit your kids with that because if you get three people in the home front <laughs> giving you valuable criticism, then certainly it, it makes you more strongly able to, to view it from other people. So my final question to you is sort of a general one. I, I have, I so admire how you have described both the way that you grew up and the way that you raised your kids in terms of this fostering vigorous debate. I mean, I think that is something that I I can remember. We do this with our children. I remember growing up, there was lots of debate and disagreement, but always civil and ultimately inconsequential in terms of how we felt about each other. So what kind of, uh, if you could sort of summarize, like how you are able to do that, like what kind of tips would you say if someone said to you, how do I encourage open and active debate with my children? I mean, is the answer just do it? <laughs> or, yes. <laughs> yes. How do you keep emotions out of it so that they don't disturb the conversation? They don't interfere with the conversation so much that, that it's not valuable. I don't, I don't think it's bad to let emotion in it. I mean, if we're talking about things that are important, things that are really close to our hearts, things that matter, people are going to feel deeply about things. And I don't, I don't think that there's anything wrong with people showing their feelings, people being emotional. But I do think that self-discipline is important. So fine, you, you know, you feel this, you know, fine. And you, you know, you feel it very strongly, but you also have to be self-disciplined in my view at all times. You as, as the parent or just everybody in the room? Everyone as, as, as much as you can. I mean, you know, I mean, we all, we all lose it some of the time. We're not, you know, none of us are perfect. And again, I don't, I don't, I'm not anti-emotion. I'm a, I'm a very emotional person. And I think that being emotional is fine. I, I you know, but on, on the question of how do you, you know, in schools nowadays, there's a lot at my school, from elementary school on up to professional school, there's a lot of talk about how do we have difficult conversations. <laughs> Frankly, I it really I, I feel a little bit impatient when I hear that, because what I want to say to people is, you, how do you have difficult conversations? Have a difficult conversation. You just do it. And you you know you how do you have a you know how do you have a difficult conversation? Well. You have a conversation that has, you know, that's sort of prickly, that's got, you know, it's volatile. And you engage in a discussion and you work your way through, let's let, you know, through you, you, you develop habits, you develop ways of talking with people such that you can have these conversations. But I think that a, a talk about talk, ah, that, that, that does not grab me. I think the best way of doing it is to do it. And in the moment, you find ways of negotiating difficulty. 
you find ways of, you know, you're, you see, you know, there's a hot flash, you're seeing red, but there's this person in front of you and you want to have the conversation. Well, how do you do that? Well, fine. You're seeing red, but you, you grab yourself and you figure out a way to express what you're saying, but in a way that enables the conversation to go on. But I think you, 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 you do it by doing it. Very well said, Professor Kennedy. I agree. <laughs> and with that, I'm going to close here, wrap it up. But first, I want to say thank you so much. Thank you so much, Randy. I really, really appreciate this. It's been a great conversation, as I knew it would be. And I'm sure that parents listening really appreciated hearing your experience and your very valuable advice. Now, there's one more thing before we go, and that is you have to play the GCP lightning round. <laughs> I have four quick questions. You ready? I am. The first question is, your favorite poem or saying? My favorite saying is from T.S. Eliot, the poet. Mm -hmm. For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. Perfect. Their favorite two children's books, and they can be books you grew up with or books that you'd like to read with your children. You know, my wife of blessed memory read to the children. I actually, I, I never did, but she did. And among the books that she liked to read to the kids when they were very young, I recall um, The Snowy Day, oh. The Giving Tree, um, yeah, the very the very hungry caterpillar. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes, and there were there were others. She she loved reading to the kids. Yeah, and it was that's... a big deal. I mean, she had a little library of you know, <laughs> books, and you know, she spent a lot of time doing that. I, I I never did. I must say, I never did. Yeah, no, those are classics, and I was a big reader. So, I mean, reader to the kids, and so I appreciate all of those. So, two more questions. Give me a dad moment that you'd love to do over. Yeah. When I was, when the kids were growing up, I'd say especially in the early teenage years for them, uh, I would, I would sometimes scream at them and I wish I could have those back. Mm -hmm. I, I, that, I'm, you know, the screaming fits we're not good. And I'm sorry about those. I hear you. I don't know that there's a parent out there <laughs> that hasn't had a screaming fit or two or 12 or 50 that they would take back if they could. Tell me a moment where you knew you nailed it as a dad. Um, the moments that I am about which I'm most proud are the moments when my kids suffered the most embarrassment. <laughs> when they're their biggest down moments. Um, Interesting. Yeah, because I, for some, I, on those moments, I was very calm uh, and I was very supportive, and I'm happy about that. As they are, I am sure. That's a great answer. So those were all great answers. <laughs> and again, Randy, I thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends. 
For more parenting info and advice, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at groundcontrolparenting.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. The Ground Control Parenting with Carol Sutton Lewis podcast is a part of the Seneca Women Podcast Network in partnership with iHeartMedia. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.